just want to say welcome to all of our visitors. We're so glad that the Lord have led you this way. We hope something will be said to encourage you, and we're so glad to have you with us. As we gather today, let's remember we're not just a group of people meeting in a building. We are the church, the bride of Christ, the called out ones, given a glorious mission by our risen Savior. That said, I want to draw your attention to a familiar passage that, while often cited, never loses its gravity or significance. So in your copy of God's word, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to pick up at verse 16. Today we are pulling away from John. As you know, we've been kind of working through John, and we are going to pick that up on next time. But considering we have several baptisms today, uh, the elders thought that it would be um, helpful if we look at baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we've chosen a portion of scripture here to kind of allow us to think through. Maybe you um, are comfortable with uh, knowing what it means to be baptized. Maybe you don't understand. Maybe it's not quite that clear. And today we hope to bring some clarity. And in this passage, we find the risen Lord standing at the top of a mountain in Galilee, proclaiming his authority over heaven and earth. And with that unmatched authority, he gives the church her enduring mission. It's a mission that reaches the very heart of our identity as Reformed Baptists and our love for evangelism. It's Fitting, then, that we examine this passage today, not merely as a call to evangelize, but to understand the profound connection between the Great Commission and the two sacred ordinances the Lord entrusted to his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are not mere rituals or empty traditions, but they hold the weight and symbolism of our covenant relationship with God and our shared journey as believers. In baptism, we witness an outward confession of an inward change. Today, we're going to hear, we're going to witness that. And those who are among us who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to hear them today testify about how God has saved them. And so, baptism is an outward confession of an inward change. It is an affirmation of faith, a burial of the old life, and a resurrection of the new. It is the beginning of the journey, a first step in obedience to the command of the risen Savior. 
Today, we will see this take place in our presence. Then, as we regularly gather at the Lord's table, we are reminded of the immense importance of his sacrifice and the hope of his return. The bread and the cup are a tangible reminder of the gospel message and our union with Christ. We are the only ones who are able to identify with Christ through the bread and the wine. It makes us who we are because the Lord himself passed it down, instituted it to his church. And so we have the great privilege of being reminded of that unity we have with Christ. So let us now look at the word of God. Follow along with me as I read. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be able to understand what your word says, what it means. Speak to us where we are. Help us to know your truth. Lead us and guide us and direct us as we understand your word, as we come and we're reminded of what your word says as your spirit teaches us. We pray that we would be helped in such a way that we would leave here a changed people. Lord God, we pray also for the one who do not know you, that today might be the day of salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would cause your word to come alive in us, that we must, that we might go away and say, did not our hearts burn within as you visited with us. Lord, we ask all these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, The Great Commission, Our Calling and Promise. I have four points. The first point, setting the stage. The second point is the authority of Christ. The third point is the command to discipleship. And our final point is the promise of his presence. So let's begin. Point number one, setting the stage. The text says, 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. At this point in the narrative, there are only 11 disciples because Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, is no longer among them. After Jesus' resurrection, they, found, they followed his instructions to go to Galilee. The choice of Galilee is significant because it was here that Jesus conducted much of his earthly ministry. And it's away from the religious and political pressures of Jerusalem also. The specific mountain is not named, but the fact that Jesus gives them a specific location shows intentionality on his part. Mountains are often, we said before, have spiritual significance in biblical narratives. They are places of revelation, teaching, prayer, and encounter with God. For example, Moses on Mount Sinai, the transfiguration of Jesus on a mountain. Seeing the resurrected Jesus prompts an act of worship from the disciples. Worship indicates their reverence, their awe, and recognition of Jesus and his divinity. This is especially significant considering the Jewish context of the disciples. Worship was reserved for God alone. Their act of worshiping Jesus underscores their understanding of him as the Son of God. Despite witnessing the resurrected Jesus, seeing him in the flesh, some of the disciples harbored doubt. This is a fascinating and a very human moment in the narrative. It reveals that even those who walked closely with Jesus and witnessed his miracles still experienced uncertainty or hesitation. Excuse me. Now, this could be due to the sheer astonishment of the resurrection event, or perhaps they were grappling with trying to reconcile the crucified Jesus with the now resurrected Jesus. And so this leads us to our next point. We're going to consider point number two, the authority of Christ. You see this in verse 18. And in Matthew 28, 18, it states, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Lord Jesus declares that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, has been granted to him. This is a profound statement that 
shows and underscores his divine nature and the completion of his earthly ministry. He's making sure that they know that he has supreme authority throughout the universe. In other words, what applied before don't exist now. It's as if the Lord is saying, my deity does not have restraints anymore. He says, I am sovereign. I am supreme ruler. In other words, he's saying, I have no limits. Listen to me. He's speaking with his divine authority. If Jesus possesses all authority, both in heaven and on earth, then his teachings, his commands, and guidelines are of utmost importance. It's as if the captain walks on the deck, the general enters the building. We stand at attention when the king of kings speak. And so the authority gives him weight to his words and his directions. This requires a response in obedience. For believers, this means living in accordance with Jesus' teachings and as recorded in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. So obedience becomes not just a duty, but a joyful response to the one who has the ultimate authority and has the best intentions for all humanity. Trust often arises from knowing that someone has the power and authority to bring about their promises. With Jesus having all authority, his promises become immensely trustworthy. In other words, it helps our faith amidst our uncertainties. Trusting in Jesus means believing even when circumstances seem contrary. But since he has authority over all things, believers can trust that he is in control. Even in chaotic or unpredictable situations. In other words, we aren't to be moved because we understand what our God has said and with the authority he meant it. Knowing Jesus has all authority provides comfort in times of difficulty. If he has authority over everything, then even the toughest situation fall under his sovereign control. But we must believe that. We must live it out. 
We must rely upon it. We must seek it out because we know that God is the one who's purposely holding all things together and he is working all things out. Can rest in that reality. He has it in control. He has the future in control. It doesn't matter what's in the bank account. How much we have saved up. It doesn't matter how loose our finances are. What matters is we understand that despite our shortcomings, Christ still on the throne, still in control. And so... He's speaking with that authority. Remember, he's the sovereign one. The one who has just recently defeated death. And now he says, everything is under my control. And he's our God. He's our hope. He's our confidence. And so... Knowing Jesus has all authority provides the comfort we need in times of difficulty. He's in control. Challenges when viewed from the perspective of Christ's authority can be seen as opportunities for growth. We can consider it as growing pains. Right? We we can look Forward to growing because we know that God doesn't waste anything. So anything that's happening in our life, we can look forward to it because he's in control. And if we see it that way, then we can see it as opportunities. Then we can wonder with anticipation. I wonder what he's going to do now, what he's going to do next because nothing can move the master. He's my rock. So, this is an opportunity to draw closer to God. So our experiences aren't random or purposeless, but they are used by God for a greater purpose in our lives. And that's why we're here today. We're here to hear from God. In other words, there's hope in despair. Even in the face of overwhelming odds or despairing situations, there's hope with Christ. Christ's authority rules and ensures that no situation is beyond his reach. No person is beyond him where he cannot pull you up out of the Maori and clay out of our sins and reach you and touch you where you are with redemption. He can do it. He is the redeemer. He's the greatest when it comes to comeback. Who loves a good comeback? When it feels like you've lost in life, God can sustain you, lift you up, and lead you out to victory. 
what a great privilege we have in knowing him. In other words, we can continue to be reminded that God is sovereign overall. The perspective can continue in providing us peace and resilience over and over again. And he's telling us that his authority extends beyond this life to eternity. He has it all in his hand. The little children used to say, they used to sing, that God has the whole world in his hand, in his hand. He has mother and father in his hand, in his hands. It's a song that keeps reminding us of the sovereignty of God. And even the little children can sing together with the adults and sing, God, our God, has the whole world in his hands so that when they grow up, when they're faced with challenges and trials, they can remember what mama used to sing, what daddy used to say. They can remember seeing their parents go down on their knees and praying to their God. And Before you know it, they would bend their own knees just as well. And they would know that there is someone who understands. There is someone who listens. Believers can approach life's challenges with an eternal perspective, knowing that our current struggles are temporary in comparison to the eternal joy and the glory that is coming with Christ. It's coming with Christ. This takes us to our third point. Number three, we will consider the command to discipleship. You can see this in verses 19 and 20. Jesus states, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I'm going to stop there and just say a little bit about, about disciples. As disciples of Christ ourselves, we understand the command to make disciples as a call to spread the gospel to the world from San Diego County beyond. We have the opportunity to be disciples in the sense we ourselves are continuous learners. We've come into the knowledge of Christ and we continue to learn. But we also have the obligation of spreading the gospel to the world, spreading the gospel in San Diego County, spreading the gospel beyond us to India. We're connecting with our brothers and sisters there through our missionaries. On the missionary playing fields, we have the opportunity to share the burdens and the load of the gospel going forward by coming alongside of our missionaries. We're able to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Barbados, brothers and sisters in Spain, over on the Indian Reservation. What a privilege we have in sharing this opportunity that the gospel may go forward. We hold to the belief that salvation is by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, which means the emphasis is on preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins to all people. This is the active nature of our faith. In other words, when we become disciples, it doesn't mean that we stand on the sidelines. But to be a disciple is, is, is taking action. It's taking the responsibility to learn and to grow and to then apply what we have learned. It is active. It is the active nature of our faith. Discipleship is more than a mere conversion. It's a journey. It's a growing journey of faith. And so... But to be reminded of that as we consider this, this thought, this idea, going therefore, making disciples of all nations. So, there's much, much more that could be said about discipleship, but I, I won't be spending any more time here because I want to say much more about the lion's share of our time on baptism and the Lord's Supper. Jesus moves on from discipleship to speak about baptism. In Matthew 28, 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So bringing them the gospel, teaching them the word of God, then after they become believers, he says, baptizing them, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But what is baptism? Baptism, according to the Bible, and as understood as Reformed Baptists, is an outward sign of an inward grace. It is a symbolic act where a believer is immersed in water, representing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, raised up, pointing to the resurrection of Christ. States it in Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see the symbolic nature of baptism? This immersion is a powerful declaration of a believer's identification with Christ. In Galatians 3, 26 and 27, it states, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So that leads us to the next question. Who should be baptized? 
transitioning from its definition, let's identify the subjects of baptism. We adhere as Reformed Baptists to what's known as credo-baptism, also known as believer's baptism. This means that only those who have made a credible profession of faith, that is, those who can articulate and affirm their belief in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work should be baptized. Acts 2.41 underscores this when it says those who accepted his message were baptized. There seems to be a particular order, right? Belief, and then out of obedience, baptism. So this differs from paedo-baptism, paedo-baptist, the paedo-baptist view held by some denominations which advocate for infant baptism or sprinkling. Acts 8.12 establishes this point when it says, But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Pretty clear. They believed first, and then they were baptized. So why do Christians get baptized, and why Non-Christians should not. Now, understanding who should be baptized leads us to explore the deeper reasons behind the act. Christians Christians choose to be baptized as an obedient response to the command of Jesus, as seen in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptism serves as a public declaration of their faith and commitment to Christ. It is a visible sign. It is a visible sign of the spiritual reality that has taken place within a believer. On the contrary, non-Christians should not be baptized because baptism in the Reformed Baptist view, according to Scripture, presupposes faith. To baptize someone without faith turns the act into a mere ritual devoid of its intended significance. And in Acts 2.38 it states, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, baptizing someone without genuine faith gives them a false assurance of salvation. Can you imagine someone being sprinkled growing up, living their lives, believing that they're in Christ, when there's no true confession, there's no true repentance and turning to Christ and recognizing that Christ alone is the only one that that saved them. They're depending upon that sprinkling that they had as a little kid. 
But in the meantime, they're walking around lost. What about when Christians get baptized? Progressing from the why, we come to the when. For Reformed Baptists, one Once a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and understands the meaning and significance of baptism, they should not delay. The book of Acts often presents baptism as following immediately or shortly after a person's profession of faith, as seen in Acts 8, verses 36 to 38. You remember the story with the Ethiopian, right? He was reading the word of God. And then while he was reading the word of God, we have Philip who came next to him and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Let me read it for you. Acts 8, 36 to 38, it states, And as they were going along the road, They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Notice that? They went down into the water. This is what the apostles were practicing. They could have just splashed the water on them. Right, just real quick, in the name of Jesus, real quick, right? But to show us the practice that's early on in Scripture shows us our order in how we must baptize. And it says they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This could vary in time for different individuals, based on what they come to faith, when they come to faith, and their personal uh, circumstances. But if you want to take a further look, uh, you can look at Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, and Acts 16, verses 13 through 15. So that brings us to another question. Where should Christians get baptized? The location of baptism, while symbolic, isn't strictly portrayed in Scripture. The emphasis is more on the act and its significance rather than the place. Historically, believers were baptized in various natural bodies of water, like rivers and lakes, as exemplified by even the Lord himself. His baptism was in the Jordan River, according to Matthew chapter 3. Today, we have the privilege of bringing water to different places. We have, we have you know, uh, pipes, right? And so we can turn on the faucet and we can fill up a pool, right? We are some privileged people. We ought to be thankful. Today, many Baptist churches have baptismal pools or they have what is called fonts. It's like what we have for the purpose of baptizing. However, the key is the genuine, is genuine faith, the genuine faith of the one being baptized, not the specific location. 
So how should Christians get baptized? The manner of baptism is of great significance in our tradition. We practice baptism by immersion. Believing it most closely represents the biblical model and the symbolism of being buried with Christ and raised to new life. The Greek word for baptism is baptizo. It means to immerse. Every lexicon I was able to look into talked about being immersed or submerged, supporting the method that they practiced earlier on with the apostles. Baptists believe in believers' baptism by immersion. This means that the whole person is submerged underwater and then brought back up. This mode of baptism symbolizes the believer's identification with Christ. The old Steve has died, and now he's raised up to newness of life, putting on Christ. He's determined to live for him. Now, not ashamed of Christ. It's making a public declaration. This is who I am now. Right? The person is baptized in this way, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus said so. It's in the text. Verse 19, right? Baptized in this way. Baptism, as previously explained, is the initiation, the first act of obedience following a profession of faith. Once baptized, the believer begins their journey of discipleship. Part of this journey involves continuous obedience to Christ's teachings and commands. One of these commands is the observance of the Lord's Supper. In the Gospels, during the Last Supper, Jesus instructs his disciples, do this in remembrance of me, Luke 22, verse 19. Here, when we consider the command to teach new disciples to observe all that the Lord has commanded, it naturally includes the regular observance of the Lord's Supper as a continual act of remembrance and proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we say, Maranatha, may he come soon, right? We are being intentional When we take of the bread and of the cup, we are symbolically remembering by faith what Christ has done for us and that he has paid for our sins once and for all. It is finished and he's coming again. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come King, come and rule and take over and take your kingdom. And so he's returning. I don't know about you, I felt kind of some chills as I was saying that. 
I'm reminded of he's coming and all of the pain will go away. All of the cancer, all of the migraines, all of the sicknesses and the letdowns and being late and not on time. (laughs) All of that (laughs) will go away and we will be brought into a glorious state. Everything being perfected. I won't need contacts anymore. I'm legally blind. I can't believe y'all allowed me to preach to you. I'm a blind man. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is that God is good and we have the privilege of sharing and remembering him with anticipation. So what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper, often called communion, is an ordinance given by Jesus Christ for the church to remember and proclaim his death until he returns, right? It signifies communion, sharing with Jesus and with one another. So we're sharing with the Lord and we're sharing with one another. The bread represents the body of Christ and the wine represents his blood shed for the remission of sins. The scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. And so we're reminded of that. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, 24, 24 and 25. You hear it all the time when you hear the elders leading in the Lord's Supper. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And so we see the necessity of it. We see the need of it. So transitioning from the essence of the Lord's Supper, it is crucial to discuss who is entitled to offer it. Who should offer the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper should be administered by those whom the church has recognized and appointed as elders and pastors, given their role in overseeing the spiritual welfare of the congregation. In other words, you can't go home and give yourself the Lord's Supper. I don't need the church, right? That's not something that's taught in Scripture. We can't have church at home. Right? We need a congregation. We need the minister. We need the word of God preached to us that we might hear the word of God. There are essentials that must be in amongst the congregation in order for there to be truly a worship service. And so we must do things in order. We must follow the proper model. And these men must be servants of Christ. Understanding who offers the Lord's Supper is equally essential to discern who should partake in it and who should abstain. Why Christians receive the Lord's Supper and why non-Christians should not? Christians receive the Lord's Supper to remember Christ's sacrifice, to also examine themselves. Right? Right? And to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Non-Christians should not partake because they cannot rightly discern the body of Christ and may eat and drink judgment or damnation upon themselves. The scripture warns from any believer taking of the Lord's Supper. It, not, it would not be good for them. And so that's why you hear us. You hear the elders giving out the warning. If you're under church discipline or if you do not know Christ, allow the elements to pass. Right? Why? Because for, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29 says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It is a dangerous thing to partake in spiritual things by natural means. Don't play with it. So having acknowledged the significance and the appropriateness of recipients, it's it's valuable to uh, determine the frequency with which this ordinance should be observed. When should Christians receive the Lord's Supper? Now, while the Bible does not prescribe a Specific frequency, Christians should receive the Lord's Supper regularly as a means of grace and remembrance. Right? So there are some who do it once a month. There are some who do it once a quarter, some even once a year. Uh, We believe that the practice in Scripture were weekly. And so we practice the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Scripture reference, Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. And so we believe that that's the normal practice. But the Scripture doesn't say, right, um, how frequent. It just says, whenever you do so, to remember him. That's the practice. So, Christians should receive the Lord's Supper within the local assembly of believers or the church context where there is proper oversight, fellowship, and mutual accountability. According to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 30, paragraph 3, it states, The Lord Jesus had in this ordinance appointed his ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine and therefore to set them apart from a common to a holy use. And lastly, the manner in which this ordinance should be observed is of great importance. How should Christians receive the Lord's Supper? Christians ought to receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, approaching it with respect, with awe, with reverence, with faith, with self-examination, with repentance, and a heart of gratitude. It is a somber yet joyous occasion celebrating the gospel truth while also self-examining one's own unworthiness apart from Christ. On the one hand, we are joyful. We're accepting the beauty of the gospel and how we are saved, but yet we understand that we failed this week. We understand that we haven't done all that God required of us this week. We've had some ill thoughts that we didn't want to have. We've done things with our hands. We've we've harbored things in our heart. But thank God 
that we can confess, we can repent of those things, we can turn and we can have new mercies and new grace. We can return again to the master and we can commune with God. What a great privilege. Finally, the last point is the promise of his presence. To close out the chapter, Matthew added this final word of encouragement from the Lord Jesus to all his disciples. This truth goes beyond Matthew and the disciples. It reaches us where we are today. And here's what it says. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ promises us constant companionship. This statement signifies that Jesus is not just a historical figure or a distant deity, but an ever-present Savior and Lord. While he had physically ascended to heaven, he promised to be with his followers in spirit. Remember, he said that I must go away so that the comforter might come. And that comforter, that word comforter in the Greek means paraclete, the one who walks with us. That's why the songwriters say he walks with me and talks with me, right? He tells me of, right? We have that confidence. We have that comfort because of what Christ did for us. And that's what we have in Christ. He promised to be with us. He promised to be with us. He promised to do for us things we can't do for ourselves. He's guiding us. He's comforting us. He's empowering us. And so it provides comfort and courage. Comfort how? In times of loneliness. When nobody's around. When nobody understands. He says, I'm with you. Times of suffering or despair. Christians can take solace in the fact that they are never truly alone. Knowing that Jesus is with them can bring peace in the midst of life's storms, courage in the face of opposition. Our brother Aaron faced it on yesterday, right? In the midst of all of that, he's able to courageously present the gospel to those who hate Christ, right? Fear seems to dissipate and go away like a mist and courage can build up in us and so when we are faced with opposition and persecution and dawning challenges the knowledge of Jesus presents to presents to us strength and boldness that helps us to stand firm in the faith and carry out our God-given mission. Then the Lord adds a timestamp on how long. He states, to the very end of the age. The eternal nature of Christ's promise is a lasting, enduring promise that will never fail. This phrase indicates that Jesus' promise to be with his followers isn't just a temporary reassurance. Rather, it spans the entire course of 
history from the moment he spoke those words to the end of the current world order, whether one interprets the end of the age as the eventual return of Christ, the end of one's personal life, all the culmination of history. The emphasis is on the enduring, unchanging nature of his presence. I am with you even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. That's the promise, his presence, the assurance we have as we face life's uncertainties. We have this, and it is kept by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So life is filled with uncertainties and challenges and changes. There are seasons of doubt, sorrow, and a mountain of questions. The enduring promise of Christ's presence assures believers that no matter how much the world changes or what trials they face, believers have an unchanging anchor. This assurance brings stability to a believer's life, giving them confidence to move forward, knowing that they are not navigating the complexities and uncertainties of life alone. So if you're here today and you have not genuinely and really said yes to the Lord today, You have heard how the Lord deals with those whom he loves. You have heard about his benefits. Salvation, according to the scriptures, is what we receive from God. It is not something we do for God. It is not something we earn. We are all sinners. And we are sinners amongst you, sinners that are saved by grace. And so I encourage you. To believe that he died for you. To pay for your sins in full once and for all. Believe that he was buried and that he was raised again from the dead. And it is now at the right hand of the Father. Listen to Romans 10.9 and I'll close with this. For those of you who do not know Christ, here's what it says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you would be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. All you need is faith in Christ, and if you believe, he will help you the rest of your life. But I must tell you the bad news. If you decide to reject him, There is no offer of hope, but a promise of condemnation, suffering, and separation from Christ throughout all eternity. You've heard the bad news. You've heard the good news. Choose Christ today.